Blog Talk Radio. Hi, and welcome to The Art of Film Funding. I'm your co-host, Claire Papan, along with Carol Dean, author of the best-selling book, The Art of Film Funding. Carol is also the founder and president of From the Heart Productions and the host of this show. Jerry Deaton is a fast and efficient user of Nuendo, Pro Tools, Final Cut Pro, and Adobe Creative Suite applications. He's spent the last five years developing Audio Cut Audio Post. As one of the new breed of boutique affordable audio post facilities in Los Angeles. As president of Audio Cut Audio Post, Jerry has embraced new technology, which has allowed him to do the audio jobs that only seven years ago required a staff of film engineers to complete. His credits span from re-recording mixer, ADR mixer, dialogue editor to sound design editor, composer, and everything in between. His vision of the new Hollywood has connected him with many like-minded independent filmmakers and support teams that understand big budgets do not necessarily make great films. It still takes talent, a good story, and an artisan approach to technology. And Carol, I understand Jerry's been a donor to the Roy Dean Grants for many years. Right, Claire. Jerry has, and he's worked on many of our grant-winning films. Thank you, Jerry, for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Great. Well, we have a lot to cover today because sound is one of the most important things in filmmaking. So I want to cover how to get to post with good sound. So let's start with how to hire the right sound person and when to bring on a sound studio. Um, I think the best advice depends on the budget that a filmmaker has. If a filmmaker, uh, particularly an independent filmmaker, is making a film under $50,000, then they need to be very careful to hire a sound person who not only will work within their budget, but has worked on many other films, and that also you can get a recommendation from the previous filmmakers that they did a good job. Um, if they're working on budgets in the $5 million area and above, usually there's quite a few recommendations they can get from other artisans that know great sound people that have worked for years in the industry and that really know what they're doing. And you're always going to get a great sound package um, from those people because, for one, they're getting paid very well and they've been doing it for a long time. Right. They're getting paid very well. This is what I always found my filmmakers say to me. Listen, I can get a, a, a DP free. I can get my storyboards free. I've got everything, but I can't get a free sound person. And I always tell them, Jerry Dean said, if you can get someone free, you don't want them. That's the key person, right? Yeah, it's it's very tricky. There's a lot of there's a lot of people coming out of college that have been trained to do sound and they've been trained in college in a theoretical environment. 
so when they get out in the field and they want to get their first couple jobs so that they can build their resume, you know, they'll do an independent film for free, but what you're going to get is somebody who's going to be making a lot of mistakes as they're learning on your film. And as a film, if, if I was the filmmaker, the producer, the director, I would not want that situation. So what I recommend usually to filmmakers that are in the low-budget or, or micro-budget category is hire those kids out of college because they probably have the gear, they have the time, and they're willing to put the effort in. But then also hire somebody who's been doing it for a long time, Location Sound, to come out and just kind of check spot check the person during certain location shots and then just get that person to go, you know what, this guy or girl knows what they're doing, don't worry about it. Or if that uh, expert says, look, they have, don't have a clue, your movie's going to be really bad, then that's worth paying for because that wouldn't cost you very much. That could be done on an hourly basis. But a lot of producers and directors don't know that that's a possibility until they usually get to post, and then they find out, well, okay, I'll do that for my next film. <laughs> right, absolutely. Well, um, most of the time when people are doing their budgets, they will call around and get prices from sound studios. Um, and I think that that's really when they should make a deal and bring on a sound person early on so that they have someone to go to and say, we're, we're going to use the XYZ equipment and so forth, and, it, and then also we're going to put that in and edit on whatever. And do, does all this work? What is your advice? I, I think too many filmmakers don't have anyone to go to for good advice. I agree. That's um, They should – do their planning kind of backwards from the end results up until the day of uh, building the story. By that, I mean they should definitely go to a post house uh, in terms of film editing and also sound, post sound, and find out what's going to be needed and then hire the people that are, are, are necessary to get that done. And if the sound company, like for say if they went to um, a place like mine and they called me and said, this is our situation, we're getting ready to do principal shooting in three weeks, you know, we've hired a sound person, but we're not sure they're really going to be able to do the job, I would tell them, look, here's, here's what you need to do. If you don't have the budget, let them do it. Hire somebody from my company to come out and spot check. If they give a sign-off, you're good to go, and then you know you can bring the package to us. And in post, you're not going to get a bunch of surprise comments like, oh, why did that mic cut out? Or, oh, <laughs> um, why is a refrigerator running during your um, love scene? Or, you know, why is that truck going by 20 times during another love scene? So that's the kind of thing that producers and directors need to really start thinking about is what's – What's 10 steps down the line, not what's one step down the line? Right. That makes sense. Well, um, I want you to, to tell us uh, what you think are some problems that you find uh, have an easy fix in the beginning because we're talking about software and uh, new filmmakers uh, using the software but uh, having problems with it. So what do you think about that? 
That's a great question because this is something I run into constantly with uh, first-time and second-time um, filmmakers. Usually, if they don't have large budgets, and I mean by large budgets, you know, $3 million and above, then if they're below that, especially in the micro-budget world, then one person is usually wearing three hats. The producer, writer, director, editor might be the same exact person. Um, oh they just don't have the money to, to, to spend on all those people. So what happens is that person knows a little bit about everything. And when they get into the editing process and they choose the wrong software, like let's say they choose Final Cut Pro 10 to do their editing on. Well, what they don't know until they get to the end is that may be a cheap and easy platform to work in. But at the end of all that and those countless hours that you use editing, at the end of all that process and you're ready to final lock your picture, you cannot get the sound out of that picture in a professional manner to turn over to a sound post company. It's oh my almost Ooh. impossible. Okay. Um, you, have to, you have to do it in a very archaic um, manner to even get the sound out, and then it costs you much more money for the the sound post house to basically recut that sound so that it's workable in a post environment. And a lot of producer directors don't realize that uh, when they start editing their own movies. So I would suggest them to spend just a little bit more money and invest in a program like the Adobe Creative Suites, or some other platform that will allow you to export your audio in a professional manner. That will save them so much time and headache way down the line. Oh, that's a great tip. Thank you very much for that. Well, um, let's start with um, when you choose locations. Give us some advice on what they should be aware of and how they should look for sound problems before you even decide on your location. Um, that is a very tricky question because a lot of times the locations that you choose, you don't have a lot of control over. And if you have a situation where you're, you're on an interior shot and there's a lot of machinery nearby making noise and you can't control turning it on or off, you're kind of stuck. You're going to be doing ADR. You're not going to have a choice. And the same thing applies to exteriors. If you're doing a lot of shots where you're trying to do something quiet like a love scene or a romantic moment outside and there's a lot of traffic or city noise, you're going to have a problem. And you better start thinking about um, your ADR budget when you get to post, because a lot of that sound that you capture in the field is going to be unusable, and it'll destroy the the look and the feel and the sound of the scene. Mm-hmm. So just so look for quiet environments. Look well, for they quiet should know that. You'd you'd be surprised how many. And I've I've been on set when I've heard this. When a director will say to the sound um, to the sound team, "Are we ready to go?" and the sound team will nod their head, "Yes." And at the same time, I'm hearing jets flying over top. 
And, and I'm just like, no, you're not ready yet. Say, wait for the jet to go by. So that goes, that dovetails back to an inexperienced sound mixer on set, not really paying attention to the environment and the director trusting that person and then finding out in post, hey, uh, there was a jet flying over. And then the sound post person has to go, yeah, why did you start the scene when there was a uh, jet flying over? And <laughs> and then the director usually starts getting very upset at that point, going, well, the sound guy wasn't very good, and I trusted him. And So everything goes back to the sound mixer on in the field. If he's professional and he knows what he's doing, you'll have clean sound. If he's new and cheap, you will have a lot of mistakes, and you'll have to fix them in post. It's that simple. Well, let me ask you this. Uh, what, when you do get on a set or on a location, what should people be listening for? Uh, like you, you said, the refrigerator was on. If you went into a house and you were shooting in the house, you would turn off like a fish tank or a refrigerator. Or it sounds like that automatically, but a lot of people don't even look at that. Right, and that's and that is the problem. They, they're not aware of the environmental sounds all around them. Um, what will typically happen is, let's say, let's say the fish tank example. Let's say you're shooting a scene where there's a conversation going on near a fish tank. If both um, actors are mic'd with lobs and they're also being um, recorded with shotgun mics, what will happen in post is the lobs will pick up directly from the mouth, and that will be the audio that's, that's used. The shotgun will be picking up a lot of the fish tank noise in addition to the dialogue, and that will probably be blended in ever so slightly. But what happens is if something goes wrong with the lob during that take mm – -hmm then the only thing the sound post person has left to use is the uh, shotgun mic. And if that's got all the fish tank noise, then that scene is, is toast. It's time to do ADR. And that happens more than you think. A lot of time, you know, uh, lobs cut out or they have some kind of clothes noising on them that's, that's hard to get rid of in post. So you have to revert back to the shotgun. And if the shotgun's got a bunch of noise on it, then you're really you're really in trouble for that scene. And I, I see that happening quite a bit. Okay. So <laughs> be aware of refrigerators and fish tanks. And uh, I guess you really have to have a good ear when you are on a set and when you are choosing locations, don't you? Right, and that is the sound mixer's primary job is to alert the director of any type of environmental sound that will not work for the scene. Some environment sounds do work for the scenes. If you're at a football game and you're in a crowd, uh, you kind of want that ambient noise of the crowd as long as it doesn't interfere with the dialogue. But if you're in a quiet environment, you do not want – you do not want that kind of noise going on. Right. This is what, uh, this is the only thing, poor sound, will pull me out of a film faster than anything. Uh, 
It, it is the most distracting thing I find when I watch movies. Yes, it it is distracting. I think to everybody, even if people don't know why they're being distracted, it's usually sound. Very very few people are distracted by some visual mistake, unless it's some odd random cut that just forgot to be taken out of the final piece. But if it's just normal, if it's if it's normal scene video and it's acceptable, um, that usually won't take people out of the scene. But but I tell you, when when there's a bad sound edit or something goes wrong in the dialogue, oh, it just your ears are very sensitive, especially. Yes. When it's blared in a movie theater at you know eighty five decibels, it's it's like you hear everything. <laughs> it's very true. That's true. Well, let me ask you: if you have a shoot that you know you have to use in the film, and you have and you are aware that you have sound problems on it, would you wait to post to handle it, or would you try to shoot it over, or what would you do? Let's say it's it's a twilight scene and it past twilight now and uh what are you going to do if you know you made a mistake would you wait for post or shoot the next day um i would i would recapture it as soon as possible um if you can eliminate the problem in the environment and then reshoot i would absolutely say reshoot i mean every director should if they think they've got a scene that they love they should examine the sound themselves with headphones on set um, I know they're rushing around all the time constantly. And they're trusting their sound mixers. But my biggest comment to directors would be don't trust your sound mixer. <laughs> trust yourself. Put the headphones right. on. Listen back. Train yourself to pay attention to only the sound when you're listening back because a lot of directors are very visual-oriented, very story-oriented. They're, they're more when they're when they're watching it back, they're thinking about the actor's performance. They need to departmentalize if they're going to wear two hats. They need to turn that button off and turn on their sound button. So they should just close their eyes and not even watch the visual and listen to the headphones and make sure there's no sounds that are disrupting the scene. And that would save them so much time uh, later on. That's but they don't do it. I don't know why. It's it's really important. I had a friend who was a French director, and he he operated his own camera, Jerry, and he had an earbud. He heard the sound, and he saw the scene. That was the only way he wanted to shoot a film. He had to be that close to the material. And his yeah, stuff I mean, turned out very good. Yeah, I mean, that's – you know, there's very few people that have the ability – to focus on the sound, the performances, and the visual makeup of the shot all at the same time. That's a very, very rare breed of talent. I've not met that many um, in the under $10 million budget uh, arena. Those people are usually, they've been doing it quite a while, or they're just incredibly gifted, and they see it all at the same time. Uh, and they're usually making your major films. Um, but for the mere mortals in the independent <laughs> film world, um, I think they need to do things in sections. You know, check the performance, then check the cinematography, 
then check the sound, and then move on. Um, Mm -hmm. Because then they'll know they've got, yeah, then they'll know they've got what they want. Mm -hmm. Well said. Well, one of my favorites and one of what I think is the greatest sound achievement in film is the opening scene of A Touch of Evil, that one long opening shot of two people walking down the street of a Mexican town where the music keeps changing and the voice uh, it, voices are heard, voices come in, go out, and music comes in, goes out. Arson Wells did a magnificent job with that. Um, I, I Don't you think that was near impossible to do at that time with the technology that they had? At, at the time that they did that, that was really difficult to do. That required a entire team of editors to be cutting and splicing and cutting and splicing and and overlapping and seaming and back in the day that was that was a marvel um, today it can be done by one guy in less than an hour oh, which is my goodness amazing <laughs> but that's that's how technology has changed the industry but yeah that was an incredible that was an incredible opening scene and you know, you can hear, if you listen carefully to it, you can hear the music pieces melding or morphing into each other. And, you know, they're, by today's standards, those would be considered very rough edits to get from one piece to another. But mm-hmm. back then, that was amazing to be able to do what they did with the equipment they had. Mm-hmm. It was wonderful. But, well, do you find filmmakers today, like Orson, who are interested in stretching the boundaries with sound in their films? Oh, yeah. There's, there's so many filmmakers right now that, that hire, you know, uh, post-production sound designers that are just doing incredible. All the Transformer series, that entire franchise, is, the, the sound work done on that is insane. The Blade Runner series, it's just it's unbelievable what they're doing and the time they're taking to create these otherworldly environments. And uh, with, with the new Dolby Atmos um, configurations in the theaters where the speakers are above you and you can actually hear rain falling down on you, um, the ability to mix for an a environment that really engulfs the listener is very exciting and and all of the sound designers are are using that technology that now is being displayed in the theaters to bring a a consumer or a moviegoer right into the middle of a picture they're no longer looking at at a at a screen and then hearing it from the screen they're hearing it from everywhere so they're living in the environment which is an amazing uh an amazing technological logical feat Right. Well, um, thank you. You're, that's really good to know. I haven't seen all those Transformer films, but I'll be listening better when I do see them. Um, well, tell me what other problems, besides the uh, technical with Adobe, uh, not using Adobe, what other problems do you see in post that might be uh, solved with some quick fix early on? Um, I think we've, we've covered most of the problems that, that I see. Um, 
the only other thing, and this is getting into the weeds of sound um, audio production, uh, when editors when editors receive their sound files from the sound mixer on location, they're usually receiving them in a stacked formation. So let's just say scene A. Scene A will have eight files that is one person talking. So it's, it's eight files of that one person saying one line, but on eight different mics or eight different situations, eight different audio captures. And then what happens is, is when the editors bring those eight files into their editing platform, they, te- they tend to merge all those together. And then when it gets to sound post, it's a big problem to unmerge those so that you can pick out the best audio piece that was recorded. So I would, I would tell the, um, whoever is compiling all those sound files, it's usually the editor or editor slash director, that they should learn the technology behind doing that the right way so that when it does get to sound post, it doesn't cost them extra money again for the sound post guy to unravel these puzzles that are created uh, really without knowledge. They're just mm-hmm. they're just created because people don't know what to do with this these files. They just look at them and go, "Oh, I'll just put them all together." <laughs> it's like, no, don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> no. That's the and that is very important. Have the very best sound to choose from. That's why they have done it more than one time. I'm sure. Exactly, and and I think directors and and editors and director slash editors are learning a lot of their technical skills these days from YouTube informational videos or tutorial videos, and those are great because they do give you a lot of insight to the technology. Uh, skills required to do what you're supposed to do, but I still would I still would tell a director slash editor, you know, hire somebody that's been doing this for a long time, bring them over to your editing suite, and just have them walk you through how to navigate these waters. It would be probably the best, you know, seventy five dollars or a hundred dollars an hour you've ever spent, and it would last them the rest of their career. Absolutely. Well, which reminds me, tell us about your film training program that you've put together. Well, that's actually something that has evolved based on all these problems I've seen with the uh, independent filmmakers. Um, I have been, I have been discussed for the filmmakers that call me before they're having massive problems and they're at a locked cut. If they're at a locked cut, there's nothing that can be done. It's just repair mode. But if, if they call me before they've started uh, filming and they, they need somebody to help walk them through the waters of sound, you know, I do do this for people. I have an hourly rate that I charge and I come out to the location or I talk to them when they're in their editing bay cutting their film together and say, look, do this, this, and this, and it will help you avoid 
so many problems in the end. And you can either bring it to me or you can bring it to any other sound post house, and they will be so grateful that you did this the right way. Because remember, you know, five years ago, everybody had a department. So there were, everybody was an expert in their department. So editors knew how to do this. Directors knew how to direct. Sound people knew how to capture location sound. Sound post people knew how to edit and, and deal with the audio in the post process. But with everybody wearing the same hats now, with one person wearing so many hats, you're getting all this, these gaps in knowledge. And, and the people that are wearing all these hats should really reach out to experts in every department of filmmaking and say, look, just give me a few hours. Tell me what I'm doing wrong. Let me fix it, and then I'll get back to you in three months when I'm done with my edit. It Wonderful. would really save them time. This is great to know. Okay, so the company is AudioCut, A-U-D-I-O-K-U-T, all one word, right? Yes, that's correct. And and your and tell us what your email is and and your phone number and how people can find you. Okay, it's uh, Jerry J E R R Y at AudioCut A-U-D-I-O-K-U-T dot com. That's my email. Easiest way to reach me. Okay. Um, and then if they want to call, I'm at 818-434-2601. All right. Great. Now, what's happening in the world with um, everybody is going digital now, ABC, uh, Warner Brothers has got their own platform. Disney now is putting in zillions, trillions, actually, to their streaming place. It looks like there is a lot of productivity going on in Hollywood. Are you seeing more films being made? And if so, in what uh, budget areas? Yes, so there's an incredible desire for content right now and an incredible amount of people making content right now. Um, Not all of it's great, but uh, it's, it's being very democratized. So you could be making a film for $3,000, and if you're some sort of savant filmmaking genius, your film has the same opportunity to be seen on the Internet in a streaming fashion as the, as the company that's spending you know, $50 million on, on their blockbuster hit. Um, so in that way, it's great for filmmakers because – if they're truly talented and they've got a great story, they can put something together that could reach an audience if they promote it properly and if they find the right avenues to get it exposed on the Internet. Um, in terms of breaching into the world of the Netflix and the Hulus and all those streaming services that come as apps on your TV – those are different waters. Those you got to make a connection and get a distribution deal. And they don't pay very much, um, but you get exposure. And then maybe on your next film, you got an in, you can go, you can get it delivered by Netflix, and maybe they'll pay you a little more the next time. And if somehow it starts getting popular, then you start renegotiating. And that's kind of the new world. You're not really fighting the Warner Brothers and the Sonys. Because they're they're already locked in. They've they've got their their stream of distribution, and 
They're doing their own digital uh, platforms. So for the independent filmmaker who used to be shut out years ago, they just no way they could get anything done unless they were hired by a big studio. Now they have a way to make a product that's inexpensive to make and then stream it on the Internet, and hopefully it goes viral. And that's, that's the new world. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, and and uh, I was hearing that uh, Yolo had paid 23000 for a feature. And uh, Netflix, the same week or the next week, Netflix had paid twenty five, then Hulu paid twenty three, meaning that there's <laughs> that they know what each other is paying to buy films for. But that's uh, in itself is a problem. But the truth is, you know, they can't make a film for that kind of money. They had, I would imagine that they had to raise two to three hundred thousand to make those films. So they they had to be prepared that they might have to take a small amount, a small fee. Yeah, it's um, not to discourage new filmmakers, but you're not going to hit a home run selling your film to Netflix um, unless you made it for $5,000. Um, but if you made it for the typical independent film budget, which is around hundred to 200000 um, you're going to have to find distribution somewhere where they're going to actually pay you for what you put into the film and some some profit. And that's a that's a bit of a dicey thing in this time period right now. Um, I hope it will shift back to um, content being good content being very important. Right now, you see a lot of good content mixed with a lot of bad content up on places like Netflix, and it's only because Netflix literally just buys everything because they can buy it for nothing, mm-hmm. and people just want the exposure. So that's it's, – it's, it's a tricky street right now to go driving down. Um, you don't want to spend so much on your film that you can't recoup it because then you won't have the funds to make your next film. So, uh, you know, I'm sure you're well aware of the distribution world out there, and that probably requires a lot of investigating as a filmmaker to find out, am I going to be able to make my money back, or am I just doing this as a pet project? Mm-hmm. Right. But uh, sometimes, you know, if they are clever enough, to make a film for let's say under a hundred thousand and sell it, even if they made it for eighty or ninety and they sold it at twenty five, they have a foot in the door because I know that Netflix will always listen or have heard they will listen to people they've sold to before. Or yes, bought that's from true. before. Yeah. That's that's absolutely true. Netflix will also listen to people who have made their films, let's, let's say your typical $100,000 for, a, let's say you're making a documentary on anything. If you can get that out on the Internet and market it yourself and create a buzz around that film being played or, or monetize it on YouTube so that, or, or Vimeo so that you're getting paid when people watch your film, um, 
that's another way to raise your price at Netflix. Because if you can go in there and say, look, we've already had 200,000 people watch this film on YouTube. Then you can go to Netflix and say, look, you know, here's the negotiation. We want this amount um, if you want to bring this to the millions of people that you have as subscribers. And then they know it's – and then Netflix knows it's a proven product. They know you're serious, and then that's just a negotiating tool. But that's another way to go. And if you can also make money while you're marketing it on the Internet through the other streaming services, then you're also – that's another income source for you uh, while you're waiting for Netflix to you know, give you a lump sum money. Absolutely. Well, what about um, – Amazon, have you heard any good stories or, of any filmmakers doing well putting their film up on Amazon on that uh, where they're splitting the uh, fee, the income? Um, I haven't really ran into many producer directors that have gotten to the Amazon platform. Um, Amazon is a little bit more stringent in terms of what they're doing. So getting on their platform is uh, there's a few more twists and turns to get to them. Um, Amazon actually likes you to put your film up for sale on their site so that they're selling it as if they were selling any widget. And mm-hmm. then they like to see the sales of that before they start bringing you into their streaming um, situation. So they can and get an identification on who, what markets are buying, who's it, buying exactly. this film. Exactly. Uh-huh. Amazon is tracking all of us, and they <laughs> know if you bought a film, then they know what other films you bought. Then, then they target you for streaming, and Amazon is you know, a keyword giant, and they know how to do this. So that's why they're just a little bit trickier to deal with than Netflix. Netflix is just Give me your film. I'll put it up. Here's some money. See you later. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's you know, it's like I said, the, the the landscape is changing almost monthly right now in the digital age. Well, where do so you I'll see just, it going, Jerry? What do you think is going to happen in the next four or five years? Well, that's a that's a great question. Um, Man, I just think that it, there's only one way it can go, which is digital streaming. That's the only way that it can go in terms of delivery. Uh-huh. Um, and I think it's going to go to a complete subscription business for everybody that's delivering content um, in the next five years. So that you sign up with some company and, and you'll sign up with the company that has – the most content, and then you'll just pay whatever, nineteen ninety-five a month, and you'll be able to watch any movie anywhere in the world as long as that company has secured the rights to stream it. Um, so all these companies right now, they're all trying to they're all trying to gobble up all the content in the world. And right. as soon as one of them does that, they will be the leader. And most all of us will subscribe to that leader, and that's where we'll get all of our movies from, all of our shorts, all of our TV shows, our music. 
So you see what Apple's doing. Um, so they're all fighting. Warner's trying to fight Apple. Apple's trying to fight Sony. Sony's trying to fight BMG. BMG is trying to fight everybody over to Europe. It's just they're all fighting right now for the power of content. And mm-hmm. that's kind of where I see it going. I don't, I don't think you'll be able to just buy anything off the shelf anymore in five years. It'll all be streaming. I think it'll just all be streaming because the Internet's getting faster. Just about everybody in the country has Internet service now. So if they don't, they'll be able to buy a little $20 device that gives them Internet in a little box. So th- there'll be no reason for people not being able to download, uh, to, to stream content in the next five years. You know, even if you make, you know, $5 a year, you'll be able to spend that $5 on that little box and you'll be able to watch movies on your TV. Well, um, that's what uh, Disney has come up with. $7 a month is what their plan is. That is very yep. reasonable, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. And I'm pretty sure the price is going to keep going down. I'm pretty, I'm, you know, I'm hoping that, you know, I, I, I just think it's going to keep going down as all these uh, huge companies start competing for all of our subscription dollars. You know, I think a, a fair price is going to be, you know, $5 a month because they're looking for volume. They want, they want the billions of people on the planet to subscribe. Right. And they're just going to keep lowering the price and lowering the price and lowering the price until they get everybody. And once they get everybody, that's that. They, they, <laughs> they pretty much control, they control everything we see. And they control every creator um, pretty much that delivers product to them. Right. Right. That's, that's the thing. Well, I wonder if Disney will be outsourcing product. I mean, can they produce enough for their own channel uh, going with what they've got? They'll be buying product, you think? I, you know, I, I thought the model was going to be like a couple of years ago. I thought the model was going to be since there's so much independent, um, content available I thought these big companies were just going to start going around and buying the content from the creators and then bringing it into their umbrella mm-hmm. but what, what I've seen is that there's so many people being employed by a company like Disney and they've been doing creation of content so long that I think they've just decided, nope, we're going to keep doing our own content, but they start shoving their budgets down super low because they realize that all these independent filmmakers are making great films for under $100,000, and Disney thinks, okay, well, then we'll just do the same thing. We'll tell our people in our creative departments, make a film for under 100000 But what they don't realize is, is those people making films for under 100000 they're asking a lot of their friends to do stuff for free. Yes. And they're getting a lot of favors. And nobody wants to do favors for Disney. Everybody wants to get paid. Of course. Right. No one Disney wants to work paid. 24 hours either. No, that's true. So – you know, I'm sure I'm sure the large companies are running into that bump right now. Netflix, with all their production, they are making so much content, but they're paying really well for the content makers. So, 
if I was a filmmaker, I would be more interested in getting hired by Netflix as a director or a producer to make content for them because their budgets are way higher than what they will pay for a finished film. Yes, yes, and they're smart. They have uh, gleaned and have hired some of the top people coming out of Columbia and New York University and people in the industry, top people who are proven in the industry. They put them under their wing. It's very smart. Yes. So they're they're basically going back to the old model of in-house creative talent. Right. Because they what control was, the cost. They paid San, Sandra Rhyme, what, uh, $700 million, some incredible amount of money to get her for a five-year contract or something because yeah. she they bought her from one of the TV stations? Yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, you see how it's shifting. Yeah. And, you know, Netflix is, Netflix has a lot of income coming in every month from all the subscribers. And it's a pretty simple concept. All they do is show you movies. <laughs> That's all they do. <laughs> they make a software that works on your TV to show you movies. That's all they do. It's and fabulous. They're killing it. Yes. Seven billion, I heard, a year was their budget. That may even be low now. Yeah, because they've realized that the the company that has all the content is the company that tracks all the subscribers. Right. Well, I think it's really an exciting time to be in the film industry. It is. Tons of opportunities out there. Tons. Just um you gotta find which which um which lane that you're comfortable living in and, and go down that lane. You know, a lot of people don't like you know, I, I talk to a lot of directors and a lot of them don't like the constraints of working for a company. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that means they go down a different path that, and the path they go down is going to be usually feast or famine. Um, you know, when you work for a company like a Netflix or, or an Amazon, um, and you're creating content for them, you are working for them. You are doing what they're asking you to do. And, and you're going through the corporate layers to get your, you know, your edits approved and your storylines approved and your storyboards approved. So that's a whole nother lane that, you know, some people love to go through and some people don't. Mhm. Mhm. It's really true. You have to choose where which lane you want to go down. You're so right, yeah. Jerry. Well, thank you. My goodness, the time has flown by. I really appreciate all the information, but I want us to repeat again for anyone who didn't get to write down how to reach you at Audio Cut. It's A-U-D-I-O-K-U-T, it's all one word, dot com. Correct. And it's and Jerry. And send an email. Pardon me? Yeah, you're, you would send an email to J-E-R-R-Y at audiocut.com is that right yes that's correct okay all right well thank you so much they can talk to you about um, your film training program uh, and they can talk to you about the uh, uh, 
you doing the sound for the, for them because you do that, and you would also help them find or send a sound person out to check them out, and you also have people to hire, right? Exactly. Okay. That all sounds great. It's been delightful. I sincerely appreciate your time, Jerry. Oh, thanks for having yes. me. I've enjoyed our conversation. Yes. yes. Terrific. Thank you very much, Jerry. Okay. Thank you. Best. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. All right. Thank you, Claire. Thank you, Claire. You're welcome. And also to our listeners, I want to tell you how grateful we are for the donations that you've given at FromTheHeartProductions.com to support our podcast. We sincerely thank you. And we'd love to hear from you with your ideas for more shows as well. Share with us some topics that you're interested in having covered or people that you would like to hear interviewed. And please join us next week for the Art of Film Funding podcast. Now, in its second edition, Carol Dean's popular book, The Art of Film Funding, has 12 new chapters to cover all areas of film financing and how to avoid expensive pitfalls. Learn how to start with an idea and end with a trailer. How to make an ask for money. Create your story structure and your trailer. Legal advice, fair use, successful crowdfunding, how to ask for music rights, and what insurance you can't shoot without. Available on Amazon under Carol Dean and at FromTheHeartProductions.com. I want to remind our listeners that David Raiklin is a brilliant and talented award-winning musician who scores films and can compose music for a trio or for a full orchestra. David is a very good friend to the independent filmmaker and comes highly recommended by From the Heart Productions. If you need music to help tell your story, please contact him at davidraiklin.com. That's David, R-A-I-K-L-E-N dot com. And Carol and I want to thank you for tuning in to the Art of Film Funding. Please visit our website at fromtheheartproductions.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. Good luck with your films, everyone. Ryan here and I have a question for you what do you do when you win like are you a fist pumper a woohooer a hand clapper a high fiver I kind of like the high five but if you want to hone in on those winning moves check out Chumba Casino at ChumbaCasino.com choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes there are new game releases weekly plus free daily bonuses so don't wait start having the most fun ever at ChumbaCasino.com no purchase necessary VGW group void prohibited by law see terms and conditions 18 plus